Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We are making our way through a central text in this New Testament book, Acts chapter 2. And we will read together, beginning in verse 14, through verse 36. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. And because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand? And if you are not able, please feel free to remain seated. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Luke records as he is carried along by the Spirit of God these words. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ 
But he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. When I attended seminary in Dallas, Texas some years ago, I had the privilege of taking a couple of courses on preaching. These courses were included in my program. Both professors had a great deal of experience in the art and practice of preaching. And so both of these professors taught me a great deal. While there were several helpful takeaways from these two courses, one that I often continue to practice, even in my sermons up to the present, is introducing a sermon or sermons with a central question or questions that are answered by the biblical author in the text under consideration. And you know that if you hear me preach on a regular basis. For example, you will hear me say from time to time something like this. This morning, we are going to walk through this text in order to answer the question, and then I'll give you the question. Well, this this framing, this question asking was taught to me in seminary, and it remains relevant for me now as a pastor and expositor of the Word of God. I find it a helpful way to communicate a biblical text with clarity and with precision. In Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36, we have a sermon that is preached by the Apostle Peter at Pentecost. This morning, I'm, I'm preaching a sermon on Peter's sermon And Peter frames his sermon according to Luke, who is actually writing this text as he's carried along by the Spirit of God. Peter frames his sermon around a single question. And the question actually is found in the text just preceding the text that we read this morning. That text is in chapter 2, verse 12. And so if you have your Bibles open, look down at that text with me for just a moment. Acts chapter 2, verse 12, where Luke has described the events of Pentecost, and then we read these words in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, and here's the question, what does this mean? What does this mean? We could replace this with Pentecost. What does Pentecost mean? And that is precisely the question the Apostle Peter answers for us in this sermon that we're preaching about this Lord's Day morning some 2,000 years after it 
occurred. And so what we're going to do is unpack the answer to the question, what does Pentecost mean by walking through Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. And if you're taking notes, we are going to identify and unpack four answers that the Apostle Peter gives in response to the question found in verse 12, what does this mean? So four answers that Peter offers for us this morning in response to the question, what does Pentecost mean? And I'll give you those as we arrive at these answers in the biblical text. But let's begin with the first answer, and then we'll look down at the text together. Peter's first answer to the question, what does Pentecost mean, is this. Pentecost means God has fulfilled Scripture by sending the Holy Spirit through Christ. Let me say that again. Pentecost means that God has fulfilled Scripture by sending the Holy Spirit through Christ. Notice that P- Peter actually first dismisses the accusation that others offer against the disciples as if they were intoxicated. And that goes back, of course, just prior to our text, as, as the crowds are seeing and hearing the disciples speaking in various languages and bearing testimony to the risen Jesus Christ and the ascended Jesus Christ, this crowd, some of them in the crowd actually respond, well, they must be drunk. After all, no one would act this way in public. Unless they were drunk. And Peter responds with some amount of humor, I think. In verses 14 and 15, Peter stands with the 11. That is the 11 other apostles. One of them being the newly appointed Matthias. And Peter lifts up his voice and addresses them, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Verse 15, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. How can you know this? Well, it's only the third hour of the day. A little bit of humor here. In other words, it's 9 o'clock a.m. You think it's likely that all of these people are drunk? Get out of here. That's how Peter responds. And then he pivots and begins answering the primary question in the text. What does this mean? Now look with me at verses 16 to 21. Verses 16 to 21, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What you're seeing and hearing actually was prophesied by Joel many years ago. And you can read about it. You know this in the scriptures. Verse 17, here's the prophecy. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent Day And then verse 21, that famous verse, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, the text from which the Apostle Peter quotes is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. 
And it seems best to me, at least as I understand this text in its context, it seems best to understand that at Pentecost, what God did is he set into motion the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. This is not to suggest that every single characteristic of this Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled in full in Acts chapter two. For example, as we just read, Acts chapter two quotes Joel two and the promise concerning the day of the Lord in verse 20 the great and magnificent day. This appears to be a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. And this did not happen at Pentecost. But what Peter is saying is this is the beginning, as it were, of the fulfillment of that prophecy. God is setting this into motion. And this will characterize God's people until, of course, Christ Jesus returns. Additionally, there are There are some social implications in this prophecy. I want to point those out to you. There are so many facets of the prophecy. We're not going to unpack all of them. We'll see some of them throughout the book of Acts. But these social implications are accented or highlighted. Notice that the pouring out of God's spirit is on all flesh. In other words, God promises in Joel chapter 2 not simply to pour out his spirit on kings on priests or on prophets. In fact, as he goes on to say, they shall all prophesy. What's being emphasized here? God God is going to disperse his spirit generously. In other words, everyone who comes to know God through Jesus Christ will receive the Holy Spirit. There aren't just going to be some elite people, a select category of people, privileged class of people in the body of Christ who have received the Holy Spirit. No, all people, slaves and free, men and women, young and old, receive God's empowering spirit. And by the way, this was a characteristic in the early church. It was a characteristic, of course, in the book of Acts, but it was also a characteristic in the subsequent centuries. One of the accusations against the church by critics in the second century was that it was just a group of slaves. Another accusation, by the way, keeping in mind, of course, the perspective at the time, the common perspective at the time concerning women being inferior to men. I do not, let me be clear, I do not espouse that view, but it was a common view in and around the second century. So one of the criticisms of the church is you're just a bunch of women. But what does it show? What it shows is that the church actually comprised in fulfillment of the promise given in Joel 2, the people described in Joel 2, both men and women, co-heirs in Christ. Both slaves and free co-heirs in Christ, young and old, co-heirs in Christ Jesus. Paul gets at this idea in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. That will become clear, by the way, as we move through Acts. It's not yet perfectly clear in Acts 2. Now, we know it is. We, We know the rest of the story, some of us, perhaps. But we'll get to this explicitly in Acts 10. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you were with us when we, when we began Acts a few weeks ago, you may remember that we made much of the importance of interpreting Acts as the continued work of the risen and ascended Christ. Acts is not an attempt to describe the work of the Spirit after the work of Christ. Acts actually is an attempt to describe the work of Christ through the presence of the Spirit. And this was made clear for us as we began the book of Acts in Acts chapter one, verse one, and you don't have to turn back to that, but Acts chapter one, verse one, Luke actually introduces the book of Acts in this way. In this, in the first book, that is the gospel of Luke, the first volume of Luke's two volume set, the gospel of Luke is his first volume. So in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, and here it is, began to do and teach. What's the implication? In the first book, we talked about what, be, what Jesus began to do and teach. In the second book, we're going to talk about what Jesus continued to do and teach. And so the book of Acts really is a testimony to Christ's ongoing work. Now glance down, in light of that, glance down at Acts chapter two, verse 33. And this, I think, will make some sense of this first answer of what Pentecost means. Acts chapter two, verse 33. Peter says, describing the Lord Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Christ, has poured out this, that is the Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. On the one hand, on the one hand, the Father sends the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. On the other hand, Peter describes the Son sending the Holy Spirit after his ascension. And this is why we've said that Pentecost means that God has fulfilled Scripture by sending the Holy Spirit through Christ, you see. And so as Peter interprets Pentecost and answered this question, what does all this mean? Peter says what it means, what it means is that Jesus Christ is continuing to do and to teach. But now he's doing and teaching by means of the present Holy Spirit among us. So the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is, is really just another stage in the ministry of Jesus. Don't imagine it as Jesus comes, he's incarnate, he lives, he dies, he's raised and he ascends into heaven. And then he's finished and we move on to the Holy Spirit. No, no, the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost is another stage in the ministry of Jesus Christ who sends the Spirit and who promises to be present with the church. How? By means of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Peter's second answer to the question, what does Pentecost mean, is this. Pentecost means God has fulfilled Scripture by delivering Christ over to death. Pentecost means that God has fulfilled Scripture by delivering Christ over to death. 
Now remember, if he connects the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to the ministry of Jesus Christ, then all of this makes sense. We're not talking about two different things. We're talking about various stages in the single ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he goes all the way back to the death of Christ. So Pentecost means that God has fulfilled Scripture by delivering Christ over to death. Now look down at the text with me, verses 22 and 23, if you would. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Fascinating, isn't it, that he's able to say as you yourselves know. They don't have to be convinced that Jesus was a miracle worker. As an aside, I don't want to get us too far off at this point, but even the Jewish Talmud bears testimony to Jesus as a magician. Interesting enough. And many have, of course, interpreted that as a recognition that, that the Jews as a whole understood Jesus to be performing supernatural signs and wonders. They just interpreted those signs and wonders as magic, not as a testimony to his status as Messiah. And so Peter's able to say here in verse 22, you yourselves know that he performed many signs, many wonders, many mighty works. And then verse 23, this Jesus delivered up, notice, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so Luke, in describing Peter's sermon, describes this mysterious relationship, doesn't he? An easy concept and tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And notice, notice as he's unpacking this, God's sovereignty in no way eliminates the responsibility of those who actually committed the act. Moreover, notice that the responsibility of those who committed the act in no way inhibits God's meticulous sovereignty. They coexist. I'm reminded of, of a quote that's attributed to Spurgeon in which he was asked about how he reconciles these two concepts, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And he responded with something on the lines of reconcile. I, I never have to reconcile friends. Reconciling two people by definition implies enmity and animosity. But in Scripture, we don't see this animosity between these two concepts. God's sovereignty, meticulous, comprehensive sovereignty over all things and humanity's responsibility. And we find it right here in the text concerning the death of Jesus Christ. So notice that Israel and other human beings are authentically responsible for the death of Christ. Verse 23b, you crucified and killed. You did it. And you did it through the hands of lawless men, probably a description of the Gentiles. Now the Jews are responsible and so are the Gentiles. Verse 36b, similar description. This Jesus whom you crucified. And yet... And yet, the death of Christ was a part of God's, quote, definite plan and foreknowledge. We'll come across this again in chapter 4 
But if you're taking notes, you may jot this text down. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, verse 20. If you were reading Genesis 50, verse 20 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, why do I even mention the Greek translation of the Old Testament? One of the reasons I mention it is it was, it was the text that Luke quotes most often. Consistently, he's using what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The early church consistently used the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So if you were to turn back in, in your Greek translation of the Old Testament, which I know you often use for your devotional times in the mornings <laughs> before you head off to work. Amen. So the next time you do this, open up to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And the language that's used is, is this. Concerning Joseph, by the way, Joseph is speaking to his brothers, his brothers who had betrayed him and, as it were, sold him into slavery and were now nervous that they were standing before a brother that they had betrayed who had the authority to have them killed. Joseph says this, as for you, and then here's the language, you planned evil against me. But God, same language, planned it for good. You are fully responsible for this foolishness. But what you didn't know is that in the midst of all of it and sovereign over all of your decisions and folly, God had planned this for good. And what's really fascinating to me is the language used in Genesis 50 in the Greek is the same language that's used in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. The definite plan of God. Same language, essentially. So just another verse to show you these paralleled paths in Scripture. Peter's third answer to the question, what does this mean, now is found in verses 24 and following. So we have two of these answers now. Let's look at the third answer that Peter offers to the question, what does Pentecost mean? Look down with me, if you would, at verse 24. God raised him up, Peter says. So again, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You killed him. You crucified him through the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. This, by the way, had nothing to do with man's responsibility. Humanity had nothing to do with this decision. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. The image here is perhaps the pains in childbirth, about which I know nothing. Some of you do. But the pains in childbirth is the description used in this text. So God loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. So third, the third answer Peter offers to the question given back in verse 12, what does this mean is this. Pentecost means 
God has fulfilled scripture by raising Christ from the dead. Pentecost means God has fulfilled scripture by raising Christ from the dead. I want you to notice something in the text that helps shape and order, potentially, our worldview. Notice that it is consistently God at work throughout Peter's sermon. Humanity is acting. Humanity is responsible at various points along the path. In particular, at those points in which we find folly and foolishness. But consistently, it is God who is orchestrating all things for his glory and for our good. Notice chapter 2, verse 17, just to name a few verses. Chapter 2, verse 17, in the last days it shall be God declares. So God's the one speaking. Additionally, God validated the ministry of Jesus with mighty works and wonders and signs. Verse 22, which God did through him. God is acting through Jesus Christ. Jesus, as we just saw, was delivered up according to the plan of God in verse 23. And then in verse 24, as we just read, God raised Jesus. God is the one who is consistently at work and active throughout the ministry of Christ and throughout all things. God acts decisively. And as I considered this this last week, I thought it's, it's staggering to me how radically Christ-centered and God-exalting Peter's sermon is. It doesn't offer a flattering description of humanity. Notice Peter doesn't begin with something like this. You are amazing. And God is thrilled to order the universe around you. You know that. And you know that's ridiculous, but it really is close to the message we hear on a regular basis, isn't it? It's close to the message we hear outside of us, coming to us, but it's also close to the message we hear coming from within us at times. We are constantly tempted to believe that the story really is about us. We're the primary actors, actresses. But the story throughout the sermons in Acts, and by the way, Acts includes so many sermons. A large portion of the words in Acts actually are portions of sermons that were preached. And what you'll find throughout all of these sermons, if we did an analysis of all the sermons throughout the book of Acts, which I think in some ways are instructive for the kinds of sermons pastors should be preaching today, I think, and, and especially the, the story that Christians should be believing today, if we did this analysis, we would find that, that these sermons are not fundamentally and primarily about us. These sermons are fundamentally and primarily about God decisively acting through Christ by the power of the Spirit. And you are beneficiaries and recipients of God's work. But we bring the problem in response to which God provides the solution. I want you to consider just as a moment of reflection, church family, with me before we 
continue to move through this together, consider with me what, what is the story that you believe on a daily basis? Who's central to your life? From the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed in the evening, is the story that you remain focused on one that revolves around your life, your circumstances, what happens to you, what you can become, who you are, how others treat you? Now, the reason I can describe this kind of a story is it's one that I consistently fall prey to. Please understand that. I, uh, I preach oftentimes um, what I need to learn and more fervently and faithfully believe. I was even reminded this morning as we were talking membership matters class, as we were talking about shepherds and, and uh, a dear sister in the class said, yes, and all shepherds are sheep as well. And I said, that's exactly right. There's only one shepherd who isn't a sheep and that's the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so consider this with me. This is not the story Peter offers the church. He, he doesn't gather everybody together, the 120 people that are gathered for worship. He doesn't gather all of the other people, the various people who have come in, from in and around Jerusalem and Judea and beyond and say, listen, let me tell you the story that you really need to believe God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not the message. The message is you've messed up. But God in his kindness has acted sufficiently and decisively and effectively through the ministry of Jesus Christ to rescue people who mess up. Amen. That's the message of the gospel. And that's what Peter preaches. And that's what we find throughout the book of Acts. In fact, it becomes so offensive at times that they end up stoning people to death who are preaching it. This is perhaps why one of the, one of the famous ways of describing a faithful sermon is that faithful sermons comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. And that's true. We find that throughout the book of Acts. Radically God-centered Christ-honoring, calling those who hear to submit every modicum of their lives to Christ's eternally worthy lordship. That's what Peter does. Peter says, notice, that it was not possible for Christ to be held by death. I love that description. It wasn't simply that Jesus overcame death. It was not possible for Christ to stay dead. Death does not possess the ability to keep Christ down. And to demonstrate that the resurrection is clearly prophesied in the scriptures, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, which is a psalm of David. And I don't know if you noticed this, but Peter interprets the words of this psalm not as the words of David, but the words of Christ. Did you notice that? David is not the one who says to God, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. David's not saying that. David's writing it, but it's Christ who's actually saying it through David to the Father. 
You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life, a kind of reference to the resurrection. The image is Christ is in the grave and this conversation is happening between the Son and the Father and Christ responds to the Father and says, you've made known to me the avenue to resurrection and life and I'm taking that avenue. It's astounding what's happening here in the text. And this is how, this is how Christians read their Bibles. It's not primarily authored by David. It's authored by Christ in this case. So you've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter goes on to say, David could not possibly be referring to himself. Why? Because David died and was buried and his tomb remained until that day. You know, Peter is saying something like this. You can go visit David's grave. If David was referring to himself, Scripture is lying. It didn't work. But rather, Peter remarks, being therefore a prophet, verses 30 and 31 and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, perhaps a reference to Psalm 132 and certainly to 2 Samuel 7, verse 31 says, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he, that is Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, the place of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Pentecost meant that God had fulfilled scripture by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ appears at many points throughout scripture, Psalm 16 being one of those points. I do want to point out one more item before we give Peter's fourth answer to the question. And this this item really is close to what we found back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is a kind of summary statement for the book of Acts. It's one that's fairly well known for those who spend time in Acts. It reads, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And some of you know this, you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's the promise. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and then you'll be my witnesses. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Luke is coming full circle here. Peter speaks these words, this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are what? We're witnesses. We're witnesses. On the one hand, that means that we're eyewitnesses, right? As an apostle, they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. But it's broader than that. No, no, we're witnesses in this sense as well. We're bearing testimony to the reality of Christ's resurrection. That's what Peter says. And so this is a fulfillment of the promise given back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And by the way, it tells us something, I think, about the nature of Christian faith. Christian faith is trusting the testimony of the apostles concerning the resurrection of Christ. Christian faith really does in, include and consist of trusting the testimony of the apostles concerning the resurrection of Christ. This is why Peter, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 describes 
Christian faith in some ways like this. You believe in him, though you do not now see him. Not many of us have the privilege of seeing Christ before we die. But we all have the privilege of trusting the testimony of the apostles who saw Christ raised from the dead. Well, finally, in addition to God fulfilling scripture by sending the Holy Spirit through Christ, that was Peter's first answer, delivering Christ over to death, that was his second answer, third, raising Christ from the dead, fourth, what does Pentecost mean? Pentecost means God has fulfilled scripture by exalting Christ to his right hand. Pentecost means that God has fulfilled scripture by exalting Christ to his right hand. Look with me, if you would, at verses 33 through 35. Luke records Peter's words, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that is Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens. Again, he's demonstrating that David wrote these words, but did not experience what he wrote about. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he said, that is David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus Christ. And we said this, it's often neglected as a part of the good news about Christ. After Christ's death and his resurrection from the dead, the father receives the incarnate son into his presence in heaven where Christ takes his seat at the right hand of the father, indicating his lordship over heaven and earth. It's the position of honor. Christ is installed as the king of kings and Lord of Lords, through his ascension. And then Peter quotes Psalm 110, where David again recalls a conversation, not between him and the Lord, but between two lords. Between Yahweh, perhaps a reference to the Father, and between another Lord. Here a reference to the Son, Jesus the Christ. And in the conversation, the father says to the son, sit in my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter concludes in verse 36 with these words, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Let's come full circle as we wrap up. Remember that Peter is answering a question. It's a simple question. And the question is, what does this mean? What does Pentecost really mean? To put everything together, we could say it this way. It means that Christ who died rose and was exalted to the right hand of the Father continues to work by sending the Holy Spirit. This Christ who died was raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father continues working. 
And he's working now by means of the Holy Spirit that we experience and those in the text saw and heard. And my question for you this morning, friends, is do you know this Savior? Have you come to trust in the Christ who fulfilled Scripture by living in perfect obedience? By dying according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God? Have you come to know and trust and treasure this Savior who was buried and who had a conversation with the Father in which he says to the Father, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to Hades, or let your Holy One see decay. And on the third day, the Father raises Christ from the dead. And after this Christ appeared to many of his followers and even some others who became his followers, there came a day when the father received the incarnate son back into his presence and said to his son, have a seat. Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And all of that, all of that accomplished by God through Christ, by the power of the spirit for sinners like you and like me. Have you trusted and are you treasuring and serving Jesus Christ as Lord over heaven and earth? Indeed, but as Lord also over your life, over your marriage, over your parenting, over your education, over your job, over every facet of your existence because in the end, the story is not about you. And it's not fundamentally about me. It's fundamentally about this Savior. If you want to learn more about this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, we would love to visit with you. If you have questions about Jesus Christ or Christianity, we would love to have this conversation. You can meet us as you exit this room, take a left, and on the right-hand side out there is a room called the Crossroads, and we would love to visit with you about what it means to trust in, treasure, and serve Jesus Christ. Well, I thought it would be fitting for us to conclude with a hymn. I don't always conclude with a hymn, but I do enjoy concluding with these great hymns of the faith. And this hymn actually was written as a description of Jesus Christ who ascended into heaven, sits down at the right hand of the Father, as the king who is worthy of all crowns. And so it's called crown him with many crowns. Let's conclude with this appropriate meditation. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne, church family. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. Inhale him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing. Who died and rose on high who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful 
for our time together this morning in worship, our time together in your word. Would you continue to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to each one of us, granting us the joy and the privilege of submitting our lives to the lordship of the one who lived, died, rose, and ascended where he is now exalted above all creation as King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name and for his sake we pray and all God's people said, amen.